Our text today is Revelation chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. So you can start turning there. Um, I want to give a little bit, a short reminder of where we are right now. Um, The uh, past few weeks we've been covering a series, uh, studying a series of judgments that that are, are prophesied in the book of Revelation. Judgments that have come in the form of seven angels blowing seven trumpets. And to this point, we've covered six trumpets have sounded, and there's one trumpet yet to come. The six trumpets, each of them brought, bring with them greater and greater judgments on the earth. And all those who dwell there, these judgments, they grow, and they build, and they start with different uh, aspects of the created world. We have judgments on the trees and the grass, oceans, rivers, the sun, the moon, and stars. But then they move to the people of the earth. And it all culminates in a third of the earth dwellers dying at the hands of a horde of demons with a sixth trumpet. And in the face of that great judgment, what the, the response of the earth dwellers is, is a tragic one and a hopeless one. In chapter 9, verse 20, we're told the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Judgment, judgment, judgment. At the end of all that, there mankind stands. He raises his hand to heaven and says I, to God and says, I will not bow down to you. Now that's the depths of the rebellion that's in man's heart. And we would expect at the end of this, six judgments, the seventh trumpet would sound, the final trumpet. Heaven would open and final judgment would come on all the remaining sinners in this world, the rest of mankind. But that's not what we see in chapter 10 and chapter 11. We see that Christ has a plan and a purpose that extends far beyond judgment of sin, or judgment of sinners, and he gives us a vision. It's an interposed vision. It extends from, again, from the beginning of chapter 10 to the middle of chapter 11, and he gives another perspective on this same time of judgment. In the form of an open scroll, he grants to his servant John a prophetic glimpse of a people who are not condemned with the world. Rather, they're identified and marked out, sealed by God, and kept apart from the world. And they they are the ones who are distinct and bear a witness and testimony among the world of Christ. They, do, they, they bear a gospel witness for Christ. So last week we saw the beginning of this interposed vision. We saw a mighty angel who was sent down from heaven with an open scroll in his hand, and his very appearance declares the glories of God. Today we're going to see John as he receives the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel. And it, it, it prepares him for his proclamation of, of this, this vision of, of God's people, this vision of um, his, his preservation of his people and the, the witness that they bear. So let's turn to our passage and read. And I want to read all of chapter 10 just so we can get context for it, though our passage that we're covering today is, again, eight, verses 8 through 11. So let's start at the beginning of chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud 
with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore, By him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. As we look at the vision today, we're going we're to look at four different aspects of the revelation handed off to John in the form of this little scroll. We're going to look first at the source of the scroll. Where does the scroll come from? We're going to turn and look at John's taking of and eating of the scroll. We're going to look at the taste of the scroll. What is it that he finds? And then we're going to turn and look at the imperative that comes with the scroll. And as we walk through this text, I want you to see that this vision John receives has numerous aspects to it. And there's actually, in a sense, a dual message here that I want you to see as we walk through. So locally, here in this section of Scripture, the scroll that John receives reveals to him a specific vision, that vision of the church. And we're going to look at that over the next few weeks. But, but there's more than just that. There's more to the giving of the scroll. Because the giving of the scroll, this wonderful vision of an angel and a scroll and the apostle, it's all part of a storyline that is actually running throughout the book of Revelation. It's a story of Christ revealing himself to his people through God-breathed revelation. So we're going to look also at that greater storyline. And as we do, church, I, my hope is that as we, as we look at John's encounter with the little scroll, as we look at John's encounter with the revealed word of God, it will provoke us to consider our own, our own encounter with God's word. So let's look first at the source of the scroll. Where does it come from? Now, John receives the scroll from the angel, but the angel's not its source. And we saw this last week. The, the angel, in his very presentation and all the characteristics that he has, he identifies himself with Jesus Christ. Now, it's not that the angel is Jesus Christ, but the angel in everything about him, all of these characteristics that are used are pointing to an identification with God and Jesus. And, and they're characteristics that are used of both God and his son throughout the book of Revelation, throughout the book of the Bible. So he's wrapped in a cloud. He has rainbows over his head. His face is like the sun, a voice like a lion. 
So on and on, the angel shouts his identification with Christ. So when the mighty angel appears with a scroll in his hand, the source of the scroll must be Christ himself. And that, now this fits with, again, I was pointing to this, this storyline that runs throughout the book of Revelation. This fits with that storyline. It fits with the understanding of prophecy that's given even in the very opening of the book of Revelation. And I'd like you to turn with me there quickly to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll look at this again. Reading in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. In this opening, John outlines a chain of revelation, a chain in which God's word is handed off from father to son to angel to apostle and eventually to the scattered churches of God. But John doesn't just outline it in these first two verses of Revelation. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he actually weaves that story throughout the book of Revelation, throughout the book itself. And we already, we've seen this already. We've begun to see it, the handoff we saw from father to son in chapter 5, when John sees in the right hand of him who is seating, seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And no one's found worthy to open it until Christ appears. Christ is worthy. And he takes the scroll from the hand of him who is seated on the throne. And because he's worthy, he begins to open the seals on the scroll one by one, revealing the the contents of the scroll of his revelation. Now, the next handoff we actually saw last week, at the beginning of chapter 10, the scroll is seen open in the hand of a mighty angel, a mighty angel who, in everything about him, brings with him the glory of Christ. And so we are to understand that when the angel stands with this open scroll in his hand, he stands in possession of a scroll that is given by Christ Jesus himself. And Christ further declares that this week when he tells John to go and take the scroll from the hand of the angel. It is his scroll, and he has the authority over the revelation in that scroll. And so in in our text this morning, we're actually going to see the next link in the chain. Angel hands off the scroll to the apostle. John takes the scroll from the hand of the angel. And actually, if you think about it, what we're doing right here completes the chain. Remember, blessed is the one who reads loud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So today the word is read aloud. Today we hear the words of the scroll of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we see that in the chain, Christ Jesus himself reveals that he is the, the giver and the source of the revelation that's given to John of this little scroll. He's the one who opens it. He's the one who, has, uh, who reveals what's within it. And, uh, and so, and, 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 you know, he is actually author of and, and over all of the, the, the process of this revelation. He opens it. He reveals it. He is the one who sends it with his mighty angel. He's the one who tells John to take it. And uh, he's the one who preserves it in his word to us today. Why is this important that Christ is the source of the scroll? 
the, the importance here is because that when Christ hands down a prophecy to his people, showing the things that are soon to take place, he declares that he is supremely and ultimately sovereign and, and uh, sovereign over everything that he reveals in it. The future events that Christ shows us aren't just something he happens to learn about or know about. There wasn't some time in eternity past when Christ looked down the quarters of time and said, oh, look, what's going to happen? No. These prophecies are the revelation of those things that he has willed to take place. The truth of God's sovereignty and revelation screams at us in multiple ways from this text. In the very stance of the angel who stands with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, declaring his declaring Christ's sovereign authority over all he has created. And Christ's participation in the revelation that he unfolds is seen as well. We saw that in chapter 6 with the breaking of the seals, remember? That with each of the seals being broken, a command is... And, and so he breaks a seal and reveals revelation. But he also sends the command to see it done. As he breaks the seals, then the... Uh, the, the the command is given from the very throne room of God that brings the four horsemen that we saw at the beginning of the seals. So he breaks the seal to reveal, and at the same time, he gives the command to see that what is revealed done. Prophecy, in, in that sense, is the announcement of, God, of what God has already determined that he will do. And, and the problem, see, church, is we do not understand prophecy rightly. We don't understand it. We think of in terms of seeing the future, like in the sci-fi movies where somebody gets some ability to look down and look out and see glimpses of what's going to happen. And he'll see some horrific thing and he'll, he'll do everything he can to try to make it that outcome not happen. That's what we think of a prophecy. That's why we get so easily caught up in all the different, the, the, the common uh, um, evangelical um, uh, Theories about of revelation that flood the market every year. You know, teachings that, that even in recent years, like, uh, you know, you should marry people of other races because you may bring about that, what we saw in Revelation with the, this, you know, one world government, those sorts of things. It's almost like we think that God's up there sitting on his throne, wringing his hands, thinking, oh, I, there's some bad stuff coming. I can't do anything about it. Maybe if I show you, you can do something about it. That's, that's a puny and, and, and impotent view of God. God is sovereign over all of his creation. He's sovereign over the future of all his creation, everything he's created. And that's why we have amazing declarations throughout the Bible, like the one we read this morning in Isaiah 46. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. He declares the end from the beginning. And what he declares, future prophecy, revelation, what he declares will result in the accomplishment of his purpose. Ephesians 1 explicitly says in verse 11, He works all things according to the counsel of his will. He is sovereign over all that occurs. There's another side to that, that statement in, in Ephesians. There's nothing that happens apart from God's perfect and holy will. Now, there's, there are some wrong ways to understand this, and people have taken this wrongly. 
There, some people will go into a fatalistic view of the future. And a, what a fatalist says is that God's already determined it. So there's nothing I can do about it. So I try. That's obviously not the view that is given here in Revelation. Revelation is not full of the hopelessness of fatalism. It's actually written to give us hope, to strengthen our faith. We're commanded to keep what is written in the book. And page after page, we get declarations of the present and future faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God who will result in our faithfulness to keep his commands, to do what he has told us to do. So the sovereignty of God is actually what gives us hope. To know that no matter what may come, and believe me, there are going to be bitterness, there's going to be bitter things coming. We're going to see that in the next couple of weeks in Revelation 11. Things are going to be hard for God's people, but no matter the bitterness of what may come, it should give the Christian great comfort to know that whatever comes, none of this is outside of or apart from or, or not a part of God's plan and his will. So we see difficult things. We experience trials. You know, jobs are lost. Slander occurs against us. People get sick. You know, those who are young are diagnosed with horrible diseases. Babies even are lost in the womb. You know, we experience trouble in, you know, marriages have difficulty. There's spouses may have up and left and said, that's I quit. What are we to do? Where are we to turn for strength? for faith. Church, when times like this come and when things worse than these come against you, how will you stand and how will you keep the things written in this book? You must turn and believe in the one who is sovereign over every one of your circumstances. You know, that's why it's on the basis of God's sovereignty that Paul says that beautiful declaration in Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's sovereignty gives us hope. And through, that through tribulation and distress, we can stand firm in him. So that's, that's looking at the source of the scroll that in giving the scroll to his servant, Christ shows himself to be sovereign over everything it contains. Now let's turn and look at John's reception of the scroll. What we find is one of the most unusual prophetic occurrences in Scripture. John receives a scroll that's opened in the hand of the angel and is promptly instructed to eat it. It's quite an, an interesting image. It's instructive. And it's based on, or it... It has a source in an image that's a clear parallel passage in the Old Testament when Ezekiel too is instructed to eat a scroll when he is commissioned by God as a prophet. We looked at it again a little last week, but I would like to turn there and look in Ezekiel chapter 2 and see what this can help us to understand about our passage today in John's eating of the scroll. So if you could turn with me back to Ezekiel, we'll be looking at 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. 
So starting at the beginning of chapter 2. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Go ahead and skip down to verse 8. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my, health, in my mouth as sweet as honey. In commissioning him as a prophet, God gives Ezekiel a vision and a symbol of all that he will be instructed to say. God gives this in the form of a scroll. And then he instructs Ezekiel to eat the scroll. Now, what does this mean? What does it symbolize that Ezekiel ingests the scroll of the, the Lord? When we, take the, when we eat things, we take them into ourselves. We taste, we sample, we chew, and through the process become intimately acquainted with that which we eat. Finally, we swallow, and it really it becomes a part of us. It is this sort of intimate and visceral taking in that is communicated by the symbol of the ingestion of the word. We see this a little further on in chapter 3, verse 10, when God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, all my words I shall speak to you, all, uh, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears and go to the exiles, to your people and speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. Ezekiel is to receive God's word into his heart. Without eating the word, incorporating it into himself, he won't be ready to give the unflinching witness that he has been called on to give. Bring this forward to the Apostle John. He stands imprisoned on the island of Patmos, as he says in Revelation chapter 1, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's already lost his freedom because of his testimony to Christ. And now he receives revelation from God, both bitter and sweet, of those things that will soon take place. What does John need to maintain his witness and to remain faithful to his calling, he needs to feed on the very words of God, to receive them in his heart. Only then will his witness be unfailing. Church, we too are called to feed upon, to eat, as it were, the living word of God. This word is our life and our source of strength. And when we're faced with trial and tribulation, how are we to maintain a pure and unfailing witness to Jesus? By feasting feasting on his word to us. Church, do you feast on God's word? Are you hungry for it? Is it satisfying to you? The psalmist speaks of the satisfaction and delight that the word of God brings to him. In Psalm 19, he says, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. 
God's word to him is sweet. It's desirable. In Psalm 119, verse 103, he says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And it's not just that God's word is sweet. It's life-sustaining. It is sustenance on which the Christian depends. Jesus taught us this in Matthew 4. He was tempted by Satan, tempted to look for his sustainment in mere physical food. And what did he say? He said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Our life comes by our eating of the word of God. As Deuteronomy 6 says, And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. Just as Ezekiel was commanded to eat the scrolls so the words given him by God might be received in his heart, in the core of his being, we too ought to feast on God's word in printing these things in our hearts. So I ask you again, church, do you feast on the word of God? Do you hunger for it more than food? Do you thirst for it more than drink? Is it God's word your sustainment in your life? What would it look like for us to feast on God's word? I want to be careful. I don't want to give you a whole list of a litany of things to do. Because then we could just say, oh, I've memorized this many verses. I've, I've read this much of the Bible today. I've got my quota. I didn't do so good that day. I did better this day. That's not the point. It's not the aim. The aim is feasting, sustenance, satisfaction. So perhaps it would be best to say that the one who eats the word of God as Ezekiel did, as John did, is the one whose days are marked by his his encounters with it. He's hungry for it. Thoughts of God's word consume him. He's like one of my children when lunch is approaching and his eyes are scouring the fridge, the pantry. He's looking on the counters. He's looking for any little morsel he can eat. He's hanging on mom's skirts. Mom, what are we going to eat? Mom, what's for lunch? Mom, mom, how much longer, mom? It's, it's desperation, that's what it is. The Christian who eats the word is one whose thoughts are consumed with how he's going to get his next bite. So do you start your day hungry for God's word? Are you thinking ahead and planning out, how can I get some more? I know that many times, a lot of times, maybe most times, That's not where my appetites lie. I know I and and we need to repent of hungering too little for God's word. Again, what would it look like for us to feast on God's word? I said before, I don't want to give you a list of things, but I also don't want to leave you without any thoughts of application. So with a little bit of trembling, I'm going to put a little bit of concreteness on this. I want you to consider something. Many times our encounters with the word are piecemeal and fleeting. We dabble a little here and there. We may listen to sermons, our favorite preachers. And I love good sermons and I love good preaching. But I'm afraid that that the wealth of good preaching that's virtually at our fingertips today has actually caused us to move away from in-depth encounters with the word of God. The kind of encounters that are pictured by what happens with Ezekiel and John. The kind that involve tasting and savoring and ingesting to the word till it's part of us. Instead, we're more, we're more accustomed to encounters with the word that are like taste testing or perusing a buffet line. So, so we'll listen to sermons by put in whoever you want, Paul Washer, John Piper, Al Mohler, whoever you want to insert there. And you may, get, you may hear some amazing insights gleaned from the Word of God. But I want to ask you, whoever actually goes back to spend any significant time looking at the text that these preachers expounded? Do you even think about it again? 
So consider, consider, church, that we each week come to gather under the preaching of the, God's Word. We, have, as a church, have committed to systematic exposition. We step slowly and systematically through large chunks of Scripture, even books. As we're doing right now, we're going through the book of Revelation. Church, I ask you, how many times during the week do you actually encounter the text that is preached on Sunday? Do you think of it or do you even look at it? Is it something you read in your quiet time or something you read with your spouse or as a family? Do you discuss it, question it, mine it, savor it? Church, how many of us truthfully now are going to get to the end of this series on Revelation and have no more than a passing familiarity with it? Or will it be part of you? Will it be in you, in your heart? Or no more than a memory of a whole lot of sermons at the end of which you said, boy, that was some good preaching, but you really can't even remember what was so good about it. Because the, the word itself is not a part of you. So I want to challenge you, church, to feed on the word that is preached among us. And I can't tell you exactly what it will look like. But I can at least encourage you with, with what the elders encourage us with every single Sunday morning when they hold up the bulletin and said, in here are good and profitable things to read and to sing and to pray through. Consider reading the text of the scripture that we preach on Sundays, whether it be in your own private time or as a family. Consider even reading the scripture that's going to be preached the next week. And discuss these things with your brothers and sisters here today. Discuss them with your family. Consider even memorizing some of the word, some of the book we preach through. And how many of us, how many of our children would not benefit from having emblazoned in our minds this picture in Revelation 1 of the Son of Man appearing in his glory? How many of us would not benefit from reciting the, the, the encounter in the throne room with the appearance of the, the one who is seated on the throne and then the appearance of Christ, the lion and the lamb who takes the scroll that only he is worthy to take and all of creation bows down in worship. And I don't, want to, I don't want to just give you a list of things to do, but I want you to consider, to think. I want to challenge you with a vision of feasting on God's word. John is instructed by the angel to eat the scroll of the Lord. The word of the Lord is John's sustenance. And the Lord of the Lord is our sustenance as well. We've looked at the source of the scroll and the eating of the scroll. Now let's turn back and look at the taste of the scroll. In his instructions to eat the scroll, the angel predicts that the scroll will be both bitter and sweet. And that's exactly what John finds. It was bitter and as honey. I mean, it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. What does the sweetness and the bitterness of the scroll here represent? Again, we can look back to the Old Testament and to the passage in Ezekiel, that parallel passage to help us understand. And we first look, the passage in Ezekiel seems to be a little bit different than the passage we read today. For there's a description that when he eats it, it was sweet in his mouth as honey, but there's no mention of bitterness. So is the scroll of Ezekiel different than the scroll of John? And we say, no, all we have to do is look a few verses earlier, and you'll see at the very end of chapter 2, the Lord spreads the scroll before Ezekiel, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So while the taste is not described as such, the contents of the scroll are bitter. Lamentation, mourning, and woe. 
You see, the word that the Lord gives to Ezekiel describes the coming judgment of God that is going to fall on Jerusalem and on the people of Israel. The Lord will overrun the city. The temple of the Lord is going to be burned, and the people of God, those who escape the sword, are going to be sent off into exile, away from the land of promise. And all this judgment's coming on Israel before her, her rebellion and her idolatry. So judgment or rebellion and idolatry is actually a part of what's, what's the, of our passage today in Revelation as well. Think about even what John has prophesied to this point. You know, with the opening of the seals, Christ reveals vision of tribulation and judgment on the earth in the form of war and pestilence and famine. And this culminates in that final vision with the sixth seal of all the people of the earth, great and small, crying out in terror at the coming of the Lord. After the seals, we have the sounding of the trumpets, and they carry with them an intensifying announcement of judgment to come, judgment on the third of all creation. This followed by a release of a horde of demons that bring judgment on a, and kill mankind. Tribulation and judgment have been announced, and now John is commanded at the eating of the scroll of the Lord to prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. I want us to look at those words a little bit further and see if that, this choice of words tells us something. There's a series of four, uh, four descriptors there. So you have peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And this is a common motif throughout Revelation. We have, uh, it's a description used to describe the full breadth of the people of the world, of the earth. And it's used alternately. It's used sometimes to describe the, the redeemed, God's people. Sometimes it's used to describe the evil on the earth. And, and we saw, we saw in, in terms of the redeemed in Revelation 7 when, uh, when it describes a great multitude of God's people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. It's used on, on the contrary side to describe the wicked of the earth. We saw it in chapter 11, uh, or we will see it in chapter 11, when the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze and triumph over the dead bodies of God's witnesses. And in Revelation 13, when the beast has given authority over every tribe and people and nation and language. So what is it that John is pointing at when he says that he was commanded to prophesy about many peoples, nations, and languages, and kings? Is it the evildoers on earth, or is it the redeemed of the earth? And I would argue that the inclusion of the term kings suggests that this emphasis in the passage is on judgment, on evildoers. And the reason for that is that kings generally is used to describe people who are in rebellion against God. So at the sixth seal, the kings of the earth tremble before the wrath of the Lord. In chapter 12, the kings of the whole world are deceived by Satan, and they array themselves against the Lord. Um, So when John is commanded to prophesy about kings, the emphasis seems to be on judgment that comes on evil. And that's consistent with what we saw in Ezekiel, judgments coming on the rebellious people of Israel with words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So that explains the bitterness, but on eating it, John also experiences sweetness. How can judgment on the enemies of God be described as sweet? It's, now, it's never been a part of Christianity to, to take joy or pleasure in the judgment of the death, on, on judgment and death of sinners. And we, saw, we see that throughout the Bible. Paul, think of Paul's reaction to the unconverted Jews. He was longing desperately for them to be saved. Turn and look at Christ. Christ died 
on the cross for those who are as, just as deserving of the torments of hell as those who, as uh, is, is anyone else, all, all the people he died for were deserving of judgment. They were sinners. Ezekiel 18.32 declares that God does not take pleasure in the death of anyone. So I ask again, how can there be sweetness in judgment? The sweetness is found in the joy that God takes in the vindication of his holiness. See, judgment is the righteous act of a holy God against those who have maligned his holiness, who have spoken against him, who have turned away from him and worshipped image, images, given the glory that, does, that should have been his and given it to the creation. So in order for his holiness to be vindicated, then these sins against him must be judged. So God is zealous for his holiness. And we too ought to be zealous for the holiness of God. That's what's behind the martyr's cry that we saw with the fifth seal. O sovereign Lord, how holy, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. They weren't taking joy in sinners being judged. They're taking joy in God being vindicated. So there is sweetness in judgment as well as bitterness. Now, having made the case that because of the, the choice of words that the emphasis in the passage, passage may be on judgment, I don't think that's all that the passage speaks of. And all we have to do is look at what immediately follows, the actual vision given to John. And in that section of Scripture, that parentheses here, what we see is a description of God's people. It concerns God's people, a people he's defined as his own, that he's protected from the assaults of the world. And have maintained their witness to Jesus. So the bitter, te- bitter sweet taste of the scroll speaks to what is to come for the people of God. They will experience tribulation as they're persecuted by the nations. As we've noted, John himself is already a partner in this. He's already experiencing tribulation. The bitterness is there. Bitter will be the experience of God's people as they're derided, they're mocked, they're tormented, they're even killed But there's sweetness as well. The word of the Lord to his people is sweet. You know, first in the proclamation of the gospel, the, the sweetest thing for a sinner to hear that Jesus Christ has rescued him, saved him by his blood, changed him by his spirit. To hear of Christ's death on the cross and to find that in him our sins have been forgiven and washed away, sweetness for the people of God. And how sweet it is to hear of God's promise that he will never forsake his people. As we get into the vision that John receives here, we'll see that God's promise to preserve, see God's promise to preserve his people. Though they're trampled by the nations, eventually even killed by the beast, God promises that he will mark them out, maintaining their witness, and even in death, he promises that he will give them new life. So church, God will preserve us through trial and tribulation. He promises that having begun a good work in us, he will carry it to completion. As we read earlier from Paul, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How sweet is the love of God in Christ Jesus. So there we find a sweetness that will outlast all the bitterness that is found in this life. 
So we've looked at the source of the scroll. We've looked at the eating of the scroll. Now we've looked at the taste of the scroll, the bitterness and judgment and the sweetness and the vindication of God, the bitterness of tribulation and trial for God's people, but the sweetness in Christ that outlasts the bitterness. So let's look finally at the imperative of the scroll. For John, eating the scroll ends with a command. He is told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. His eating necessitates speaking. It's the same imperative that falls on Ezekiel. In the parallel passage, Ezekiel eats the scroll and is immediately followed with, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. What is the, you know, so the imperative for Ezekiel is he has to speak God's words. And it, it speak, it, it, God says even more than that. What he says later on in Ezekiel 3 is, If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will, will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, or from his wicked way. He shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So not only is there a command given to Ezekiel to speak the words of God, there's some teeth behind that command. Ezekiel's held responsible for whether he does, whether he is faithful in his proclamation. If he's faithful, then he, no matter how the people receive his word, he's going to be delivered. If he's faithless, he's going to be condemned. Church, for us too, there is an imperative that comes with the reception of God's word. We too must speak. Now, we need to be careful. John and Ezekiel are prophets. They received divine revelation from God. God's Holy Spirit inspired them in such a way that the words they wrote were the very words of God himself. Brothers and sisters, we are not prophets. But that doesn't mean we have no imperative that comes from receiving and taking in the word of God. We are to eat the word of the Lord, to feast on it for our sustenance and our life. And what will be the result for us? Our imperative is that we, who are God's people, set apart for his purpose and given the very words of God by the sovereign hand of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, must and will bear a faithful gospel witness in this world. That is our imperative. We must bear witness to Christ. And that's, that's the message of Revelation. How are we, church, described in Revelation chapter 1? We're a kingdom of, of priests and lampstands. In, in the letters to the seven churches, what is the consistent message? We are to maintain our witness to Christ, no matter the persecution that will arise. So our witness to Christ is in mind here as well. The vision John receives Following the command to prophesy is a vision of God's church. Remember, his church is what we're going to look, be looking at. And it's a vision of God's faithfulness to mark out his people, to set them apart. And it's a vision of his people's faithfulness in their witness to Christ. They are described as witnesses, lampstands, faithfully prophesying before a world that hates and even kills them. We are to be faithful witnesses to Christ. Now, church, we aren't prophets like John, but when we faithfully bear witness to the word of God, to all that Christ reveals to us, then our voice in this world is going to be a prophetic one. Every day, I mean, every week when we gather together, this imperative is, is lived out in part as, as we, we come together and the, the, the word is spoken forth, witnessing 
witnessing to Christ. But even for those of us who may not get up in the midst of a public ministry and preach the word, this is an imperative for all of us. It's an imperative that we see in Colossians 3 when it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Church, let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. We feed upon it, and it's expressed in our witness one to another. It's a witness in our homes, husband to wa- husbands to wives, parents to children, sibling to sibling. And church, we may not be called to the proclamation, the public ministry and proclamation, but every one of us is given the admonition in 1 Peter three fifteen when it says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. The very reason they would ask is, our, is because of our witness. And when we ask, we are called to give a faithful witness. So First Peter declares that when bitterness comes and we're persecuted for our faithfulness to Christ, we are all to be ready to bear witness, a gospel witness to the hope that is in us. So that is the imperative that must come with our reception of the revelation of Jesus Christ to us. We must speak and bear witness to all that we have seen and heard. We've seen a remarkable vision here. John receives a scroll from the hand of an angel. It is the scroll of the revelation of Christ Jesus. And as the scroll source, Christ declares himself to be sovereign over all it contains. He's sovereign over the future. He's sovereign over whatever tribulation his people are experiencing. If you are in Christ, then no matter the trials and tribulations that you're experiencing, you can rest in knowing that he will preserve you. He will preserve you through it. In the eating of the scroll, we've seen our own necessity of feasting on God's word. And, and, and that question, is God's word really sustenance for us? Is it our life? Do you hunger for time to savor and enjoy it? Do you make it a part of you? you feast on God's word, you're going to find that it is both bitter and sweet. There's bitterness and sweetness in God's judgment on sinners. But for us who are being saved, there is bitterness and sweetness even in our salvation. Bitter was the death of the living Son of God who died on the cross and took on himself the judgment for our sins. But sweet was the glorious day when he was raised from the dead in power. And he declared his victory over sin and death. Church, we share in Christ's death. And there's bitterness there. But we also share in his resurrected life. And there is sweetness there. When John had eaten the scroll of the Lord, he was given an imperative. He had to speak of what he had seen and heard. We too have an imperative. We have We who have shared in the bitterness and sweetness of Christ's death and life, we are to bear an unfailing witness to him before this world of the hope that now dwells in us. So let us be praying that God, by his power, would be so gracious as to maintain that witness in us. Bow with me in prayer this morning.